Hi, I am Cassie. And I'm Evelyn. Welcome to the Stream of Life podcast, where we share stories that inspire actions for peace, security, and justice. We have a special guest in this episode, Reverend Mark Hansen. I would love to jump into a conversation with Mark right away, but for formality, let me introduce him first. Just don't let this following long biography intimidate you, because honestly, Mark is the most humble person that I have known, and he is truly loved by our students and staff for his kindness and wisdom. So Reverend Mark Hansen served as the founding director of Interfaith at Oxford, where he leads Oxford University's commitment to interfaith leadership being a core aspect of Oxford's academic mission. Prior to his current appointment, Bishop Hansen served as the presiding bishop of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America from 2001 to 2013. From 2003 to 2010, he was elected to serve concurrently as the president of the Lutheran World Federation, where he represented the global communion of Lutheran churches. In 2011, he became a member of President Obama's Advisory Council on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. Today, we are honored to hear Mark sharing his stories of interreligious leadership and peace building. Bishop Hansen, could you please tell us how you got involved into this work of peace and justice? Well, thank you very much, and it's an honor to be with you and have this conversation. I look forward to it very much. I've been very shaped by the context in which I've lived and in which the world has been engaged in my lifetime, as well as a constant rethinking faith as response and shaping of that context. So I was uh, very formed by the racial justice movement and the anti-war movements in the 60s and 70s in the United States. I was raised in a white neighborhood and I went to a white school. I lived in Norway for two years, but then suddenly in the middle of the 60s, I began to become aware of this struggle for civil rights and it began to shape my world and I began to see the world differently then I was a delegate to the World Council of Churches meeting in Uppsala, Sweden in 1968, and to be in solidarity with people from all over the world that were bringing the stories of injustice and violence, it began to reform me. Then I went to did my theology at Union Theological Seminary in New York City, a seminary known for its deep commitment to forming leaders for peace with justice. And then I served my first parish in a community of low-income people, 95% black in public housing, and I lived in the community with my wife, and that has had a huge impact on forming me as a leader. And then I, I became bishop of St. Paul Synod, and then presiding bishop of the church, and then I was elected president of the Lutheran World Federation, quite unexpectedly for me. So for seven years, I led 75 million Lutherans in the world, and I was constantly being immersed in contexts that called me to rethink my presuppositions as a theologian, as a person, as a leader, about what it means to live in a world of injustice and conflict. So that's what we'll talk about. Wow, that's very, very interesting. And... Uh... Let's just try to bring that to what is happening today. 
if we connect the 1960s civil movement to uh, our human rights struggles for human rights and social injustices in America and across the globe, uh, do you think anything has changed? Well, uh, I must say on the one hand, it's disappointing as one who in the 60s and 70s had a strong sense of idealism about the impact of our work and the movements of which we were a part. I never thought that when I'm now in my 70s, the world would be still as systemically oppressive, still as uh, divided between the few that are wealthy and powerful and the vast majority who struggle for just the basics of existence to say nothing about access to power. So that part is discouraging. What's encouraging is the energy that has now resurfaced, especially in the Black Lives Matter movement. I happen to live less than a mile of from the intersection where George Floyd was killed. So um, it's just pulsates from that now very spiritual, holy place that people come uh, to stand. And um, I think what's, uh, what else is encouraging is that we who are white are taking more seriously now that, that anti-racism has to be our work, that we have to confront systems of white power and white privilege and dismantle those systems. That too long, I think we found our comfort zone in solidarity with black leaders and civil rights movements rather than doing our work as white folks. So that's encouraging. Um, but we are, we are an interracial family, my family. Uh, we have six children, four black, two white. I, all six of my grandchildren are black. I. I wanted to give them, be part of giving them a world that was more just than I think the world is. But I'm encouraged that they all have a passion to be part of making this a more just, equitable, hospitable, uh, fair world. And so that's encouraging. Wow, you have an amazing experience. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Yeah, you're welcome. Maybe one day we'll be blessed to see some of your children and grandkids. Yes. And Bishop, could you please share with us what strengthens you in difficult times when you are faced with violence, injustices, as you have told us? Well, I would say there are many things, but I would name three things that strengthen me in times of like this, in times of violence and injustice. The first is the work and the witness of those who are living in the midst of that violence and that injustice, who are experiencing that as their reality every day, but refuse to succumb to its power and have a deep resolve to, to make this a more just, peaceful world. So let me tell you some examples. So in... Um, 2003 or 2004, when the, that long civil war in Liberia was coming to an end that had been so destructive, villages were burned and 200,000 people were killed, I felt it was very important for me to go to Liberia as president of the Lutheran World Federation, and there are many Lutherans in Liberia, but to, to stand with the people of Liberia as they now try to rebuild their nation. 
And I'll never forget the Women in Peacebuilding Network, WIPNet, were the Lutheran women who were a spin-off, really, of the Women of Liberia Mass Action for Peace that was such a strong force in bringing to an end that civil war and rebuilding the country. Wherever we went in Liberia, the, the WIPNet women would lead us. They would lead us with their song and their dance. They would lead us with their witness. So they became the encouragers of us and the villagers and the people who are trying to rebuild their lives more than I was. I was simply there, important, but I was there to accompany them. So I remember going to El Salvador after the conflicts, uh, there continued to be conflicts now, sorry, with all the gangs and everything, but this was after the Civil War. When we got off the plane, we were met at the airport by young people, middle school and high school, that had formed a group called Angels for Peace, and they wanted to be the first young people we met in El Salvador, not gangs, not guerrillas, but angels for peace. And after our visit in El Salvador, the day we were leaving, we went back to the airport and there were the angels for peace. And they presented me with a cross that they had made by crushing toy pistol guns that were plastic, crushed them into pieces and remade them into a cross. So let me tell you a couple others. One of the things I learned as a leader, global leader, is that I had access to power. I, I would meet with presidents and popes, and I would meet with prime ministers and religious leaders. That can be very seductive when you have access to people in power. So it was very important for me after I had met with somebody in power in a country. And by the way, I always brought local religious leaders with me. I was not gonna go and meet the president of a country on my own or the prime minister. It was important that I created space so that the local leaders could speak to their president because most often they'd never had that opportunity. Mm -hmm. So I met with the president of Chile and we were trying to get greater understanding of how they were working to find what happened to all of these, especially women who disappeared during the Pinochet regime. But after meeting with the president of Chile, it was very important that the next day I went to the EPIS project, which is a, a women's health collective and an education collective amongst the poor because I didn't want my time in Chile to be just about meeting with the president, but to stand in solidarity with those who are trying to create a different society. Or after 9-11, I, like many religious leaders, went to ground zero. But three months later, it was important for me to go back to a Spanish-speaking congregation in the Bronx. And I'll never forget, they had 36 baptisms that day all in Spanish. I don't speak Spanish, but I learned how to do baptisms in Spanish. But sitting in the front row of that sanctuary was a man all wrapped in his bandages. And I learned that his child was being baptized that day. And he was a firefighter who had been burned in the towers as they fell. And this was his first time out of the hospital but he wanted to be there for the baptism of this child. So here was a community reeling from this death and destruction of 
and yet they were a community of hope surrounding these children being baptized and adults and this firefighter now on the journey of healing. One last story, okay? I will tell you more stories later about, I've been very involved in the struggle for Palestinian liberation. Many times I've been in Palestine and Israel and Jordan. But I remember when I went after the second intifada, it was very important for me to go to be with the Palestinian people, to be with Bishop Munib Yunan, who is the Bishop of Jordan and the Holy Land. And, uh, you know, the, the Israeli defense forces were just brutal in the way they went and destroyed homes and killed people during the Intifada. Well, partly, uh, part of my trip that day was to go to Hope School in Ramallah, which is actually a Lutheran school, but half the students are Muslim and half are Christian. And they wanted me to see that they live peacefully together, they study together, they dance together. And then they invited me back later the next year for their graduation. So I participated in handing out their diplomas with a life-size picture of um, Yasser Arafat, right, hanging behind me. So this juxtaposition of a Lutheran bishop, Yasser Arafat, whom I had met before he died, and these Muslim and Christian students getting their diplomas together was a sign of encouragement, even though I get very discouraged about the lack of a lasting just peace between Israel and Palestine. Well, I could go on, but I think I'd better stop. You maybe want to ask another question. Excuse me. That's only the first one. You asked me what strengthens me. That's only one, being with people in solidarity. Secondly, is my understanding of God's call in baptism. When we as Lutheran Christians affirm our baptism in the rite of confirmation, we ask, do you intend to live in the covenant God made with you in holy baptism? And then we say what that means. It means five things. And the fifth thing is, will you strive for justice and peace in all the earth? When I took stands on justice issues or economic issues or environmental issues with which the members of the church didn't agree, I would get these angry emails. We used to give a, an award of the, who was the angriest email with the presiding bishop in the month. But people would say, Bishop Hansen, by what right do you speak on the war in Iraq? By what right do you speak on economic issues or on issues of, of uh, the environment? And I would always write back, I speak by virtue of my baptism. I hope you're speaking on the basis of yours. It doesn't mean that all the baptized will agree on what makes for justice. Some may argue for distributive justice, others for retributive justice, others for restorative justice. But what's not open to argument is, if you are baptized, you are not exempt from the work of peace and justice. And then we go on to say, to our ministers in our constitution, every ordained minister in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America shall speak publicly to the world in solidarity with the poor and oppressed, calling for justice and proclaiming God's love for all the world. That's what you're called to do in addition to proclaim the gospel. Third thing that gives me strength is my understanding of the Christian faith. Martin Luther said, 
faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace. So sure and certain that you could stake your life on it a thousand times. Such faith, said Luther, frees us to serve everyone, suffer everything out of love and praise to God who shows us such grace. And the other thing is to have courage. I was, uh, I don't, Dr. Ronald Heifetz was, I think, one of the foremost writers on leadership in the world. Uh, One of his books was Leadership Without Easy Answers. And he and I were presenting at a theology conference. And somebody asked him, Dr. Heifetz, you work with leaders in government, education, religion, the nonprofit sector, business. Is there any characteristic that you see of leaders that's common across all those disciplines? And he said, absolutely. It's the meltdown of courage. He said, leaders today lack courage. So I never forgot that. And I hope that I was a courageous leader. Thank you. That's amazing. Yeah, and I mean, you already mentioned that you have been in many leadership positions, whether it's at Oxford University or it's at like state or national or like international level. So could you share some of your stories when you have to make a difficult decision as a leader, especially if it's an issue of peace and justice? And what guided you in those situations? That's that's been characteristic of a lot of my leadership. In August of 2001, I was elected presiding bishop of the church. In August of 2002, I began to become very uncomfortable with the rhetoric coming out of the President Bush administration about Iraq. I began to sense that we were being positioned to invade Iraq. And I felt that that possibility was immoral. Now, how did I come to that basis? The Evangelical Lutheran Church in America has a process called the development of social statements that we take two to three years as a church to thoroughly engage an ethical question like peace, like the economy. We have about 20 of these statements, the environment, education, And we go through this very democratic process of creating a lengthy, usually about 20, 30 pages, that's foundational for how we engage that issue in the world. It doesn't bind our conscience, but it informs our conscience. And we have a statement called uh, For Peace in God's World that outlines what might be a just reason for war, because we're not a pacifist church. Well, I didn't feel that going to war in Iraq met any of those criteria. So in August of 2002, I came out publicly against the possibility of invading Iraq. I was the first U.S. religious leader to do that because, remember, we didn't invade Iraq till the next March of 2003. Well, that generated a lot of conflict. But I had absolute confidence that on the basis of our social statement, on the basis of my understanding of what is just and unjust, that it would be unjust to invade uh, Iraq. I'll tell you another story. Um, It was that same fall 
I was lecturing to a group of clergy in Ohio and I got a phone message from the White House. Uh, Will you come Friday, this was a Wednesday, to meet with President Bush? I had not yet met with him because he is gathering 12 religious leaders from different religious traditions and he wants to hear what you think is the significance that now we are coming to the first anniversary of 9-11. This was, this was September of 2002, so we were just about to have the first anniversary. He wanted to hear from us what we thought was the significance of 9-11. Well, I went out to this group of clergy I was lecturing to and I said, well, what would you tell President Bush is the significance? And this young pastor, she was in her first parish, said, I would tell him where I was and what I was doing on 9-11. I said, tell me more. She said, I was in the hospital with a young couple having their first baby and the labor became very difficult. So they asked me as their pastor to come with them. And as this labor became intense, we began to watch the television and we saw the first tower fall. And just as the second tower fell, the baby came through the birth canal. And she said, I would tell him, President Bush, don't ever forget, in the midst of death and destruction, God is laboring to bring forth life. Well, when it came time to, for me to talk to President Bush, and by the way, I used to go to Lafayette Park in the 60s to protest the war. I used to yell at the White House. I was one of those long-haired hippie types. And I'll never forget this day, I walked through Lafayette Park by myself in my black clergy garb with my big pectoral cross, thinking, oh, it was a lot more fun in the 60s to yell at this building than to walk into it to meet the president. And then I thought, I wish it was President Bartlett I was meeting because I used to watch West Wing. But in this meeting with President Bush, the people before me had all been praising President Bush and praising the United States. And I thought, do I have the courage to challenge the president, not praise the president? So when it came to my turn, I told him the story that that pastor had told me about the baby. And then I said, Mr. President, it's my hope and prayer that 9-11 will not cause the United States to withdraw in fear from the world or lash out in aggression, seeking to control and dominate the world. But it will be the time when we are called to stand in solidarity with all those who experience such death and injustice every day of their life and together work to build a world of justice and peace. Mm -hmm. I mentioned that I've been in Israel a lot, in Palestine, and some of my most challenging moments have been when I, with the bishop of the, Pal the Lutheran bishop of Jordan, the Holy Land, would confront Israeli leaders, and did I dare to challenge them? And I had some very challenging conversations with the foreign, the foreign minister of Israel, with the interior minister, with with the president. And I, I chose to be very challenging. I'll never forget when the president said to me and happened to have TV cameras going, he said, Bishop Hansen, there is no suffering among the Palestinian people except what they bring upon themselves because of their terrorism. And I blurted out, you have got to be kidding, sir, <laughs> which is not something you usually say to a president. And I did. 
and I proceeded to describe the suffering of the Palestinian people that I had seen, or the interior minister, I challenged him because he was not granting passes for Palestinian people to come to work in the Israeli side. He was not allowing Palestinian people to come to Augusta Victoria Hospital, the only pediatric cancer hospital that would treat Palestinian children. And I began to challenge him and he got furious. The, the end result on one of my trips is I was at the airport and suddenly they took away my passport and my ticket and it was clear that I was being detained for challenging. Now, did I feel scared? No, what I realized was the Palestinian people every day go through that when they have to go through check posts, that this is their experience of being humiliated and shamed and isolated. Mine was just a little, a little moment in my life when I knew I would get out of there, but it taught me um, what it means to be in solidarity with people who lead that all the time. When the chief rabbis of Israel welcomed our our bishops that were there to visit, it was supposed to be a nice protocol, hospitable visit. But the Israeli planes were bombing Gaza at the time. I could not sit there and just be a hospitable guest. So I chose to challenge the two chief rabbis of Israel about the immoral action of their defense forces in bombing Gaza. It became a very contentious debate. One of the ways, I don't want this to be about me. I want this to be about me in relationship to others. So one of the things we did in the United States in response to the ongoing Israeli-Palestinian conflict was to create the National Interreligious Leadership Initiative we called it NILI, N-I-L-I, National Interreligious Leadership Initiative. It was a group of Jewish leaders, Muslim leaders, and Christian leaders committed to advocating for a lasting just peace between Palestine and Israel. And our rule was that we had to agree among ourselves before we could go to anybody in the government of Israel or the Palestinian Authority or the United States and ask them to take action. So we needed to practice what we were asking governments to do in their relationship with each other. And that was a very important step. So we would have 12 steps that we thought the government of Israel needed to take. We had 12 steps that the Palestinian Authority needed to take. We had 12 steps that the government of the United States used to take, but needed to take. And we would go and we would meet with Condoleezza Rice, or we would meet with Secretary Powell when he was, or we would meet with President Bush. But we would also meet with Palestinian leaders mm -hmm. and with Israeli leaders. Then, while this was going on, the Christian, Jewish, and Muslim leaders in the Holy Land formed a Council of Religious Institutions of the Holy Land, so mirrored our organization. And they came to the United States then to meet with us and to meet with government leaders here. So it, I think that's a model for interreligious action in response to injustice and peace, that it has to be collaborative across religious barriers and boundaries. We have to do the work ourselves that we're asking governments to do. 
We must have counterparts on the ground in the conflicted zones and areas of the world. And then we must be relentless in our pursuit of those goals for a lasting peace with justice. Well, my work now at Augsburg, I flunked retirement. I now lead the uh, Interfaith Institute at Augsburg, which is an institute to promote interreligious learning and leadership. And it's all about believing that no one religion has the answers, but we together can serve the common good. And that's a, that's a very important, you know, I've made a lot of mistakes in my leadership days. So don't make this sound like, like I've had these series of amazing experiences, which I've had. I remember when I, as presiding bishop, I also am the president and chief executive officer of the church organization. And I thought it was time to restructure, to be more effective. So I created a team and we proposed a restructuring. And part of that was to redo how we address issues of racism and the work of communities of color in the church. Well, I didn't consult with any persons of color in the process of developing that plan. You'd think I would know that, right? So I come out with my plan and the leaders of color and the communities of color in the church were furious. 110 people flew to Chicago, packed in a ballroom at a hotel, called me in, and for three hours rightfully screamed at me, chastised me, challenged me. And I had to take that plan off the table, start a whole new process based on consultation and conversation and collaboration. I learned my lesson. That is interesting. It means you are really a great leader, that you are able to bend according to people's needs and interests. Well, I, I, and I think, um, when I think of the church's role in the struggle for justice and peace, to me, it has to be a collaborative role. It has to be in relationship with others. And, and let, let me tell you a couple other stories about that collaboration, because I think that they're illustrative. The first time I met King Abdullah II of Jordan, I, I went to meet with him in his palace, and I thought, usually those meetings are quite formal, and they're in large rooms with lots of aides. I bring, I bring people, and the king brings people. Well, this time it was in a small room, and it was just two bishops with me, and he had two aides. But the focus was our conversation, and I will never forget the first thing he said to me. He said, Bishop Hansen, we have work to do and we need to do that work together. We have three things we need to do together. One, we need to find a just and lasting solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Two, we need to find a way that Jerusalem is a shared city between Jews, Christians, and Muslims. And three, we have to deepen the dialogue between Christians and Muslims all over the world. So here is a king and, and the leader of 75 million Lutherans in the world opening a conversation by setting an agenda for our collaborative work that I committed to, he committed to. We met later in Washington when he was here to meet with President Obama. I met with his, his, uh, his leadership people. So that's, that's an important illustration. Secondly, 
dialogue is important, but dialogue, I don't think in and of itself will lead to justice and peace. It needs to be a process of diaproxis. Diaproxis, as you know, is a process of acting in the world together, praxis, and then reflecting on that action. And in the reflection, we will be again empowered to engage in action again. So I'll tell you a story. After the tsunami in Indonesia and India, I didn't go over like so many leaders to have a photo op getting off the plane so you could go back and raise money at home. I just refused to be that kind of leader of manipulating a crisis for our own our own ends. So I waited a year before I went over. But we learned that one part of Indonesia that had been so hit by the tsunami and destroyed, it was a primarily a fishing area. So fishing boats were destroyed, schools were destroyed, homes were destroyed. But it was a community of half Muslims and half Christians. And they could not trust each other enough to work together to rebuild their villages and their ships, their fishing boats. So we invited the Muslim and the Christian leaders of that village to leave the village and come to a different site for a week. And for one week, they engaged in conversation about what this experience had been like for them as a Muslim, as a Christian. And what about being a Muslim informed them now as they tried to rebuild. But at the beginning of that week, there was no trust. The Muslims thought the Christians were there to make them Christians, and the Christians thought the Muslims were there to establish an Islamic theocracy in Indonesia. It took three days to build enough trust to begin to imagine how they could work together. By the end of the week, they had developed a plan for going home to begin to collaborate in the rebuilding of their community and to commit to continue to talking. So they set in motion this this process of diaproxis. And when I became bishop in St. Paul, a local bishop, the first thing I did was contract with community organizers to come and train the people of the synod, the lay leaders, the pastors, in the arts of community organizing. Because I think people need to learn how to organize power, organize money, organize people, because too often the church just speaks about power and peace and justice. If you want to know the phrase that I absolutely detest, and I will never say it except in this podcast, I am here to speak for those who cannot speak for themselves. I just can't stand that. Everyone can speak for themselves. They just need to know how to access the power so their voices are heard. Community organizing is one of those means of achieving power to act Mm -hmm. so you can build systems that are more just and peaceful. So I gathered all the leaders in St. Paul. We blew the ram's horn. We declared a year of jubilee. And we said, no committees or boards will meet for a year until we figure out what it means to be the church in this community in this time. And we spent all of Lent training people to go door to door, knocking on doors, simply to listen to the hurts and the hopes and the cries of their neighbors. And out of that, we formed what it means to be the church, out of listening. Oh, I go on and on and on. Cassie, have I put you to sleep? I hope not. Thank you so much for sharing them with us. 
Well, I, I want to say a word about how important I think it is to engage in acts of repentance and reconciliation. I know some people can see those as empty acts, they're just words, but they need to be powerful actions and not just words. Mm -hmm. So I'll tell you a couple stories. It's been difficult to get the United Nations AIDS Conference to include religious people as members because so often in the world, religious communities stigmatize and, and alienate people who are HIV positive or living with AIDS. And I understand that. So we would have a pre-conference to the UN AIDS conference for religious communities so we could build solidarity and, and find a different way to respond to this. And eventually we got to be part of the whole AIDS conference. So at one of the AIDS conferences in Mexico City, I was to speak at the pre-conference and they wanted me to speak on how the church responds to the stigmatization and marginalization of people with HIV and AIDS. What they didn't tell me is right before I was to speak, two women who are HIV positive told their stories of being oppressed, marginalized, stigmatized by their religious community for being mm -hmm. HIV positive. The their stories were so moving and hurtful and made people angry, rightfully so. And then they introduced this bishop leading 75 million people who was supposed to get up and give a talk about that topic. How could I do that with integrity? So what I did is I went and looked for a bowl of water and a towel. I took off my coat, I took off my pectoral cross, I invited those two women back up on the stage, I took off their sandals, I got down on my hands and knees, and I washed their feet as an act of repentance on behalf of the church for how they had been treated by the church. That's the only thing I could do with integrity. Or when I was asked to speak at the Fort Peck Community College graduation on the Fort Peck Indian Reservation in Montana. I was the first white person they'd ever asked to speak at their community college graduation. It's one of the American Indian Community Colleges. I thought, how do I as a white person speak with integrity on a reservation, given how white people have treated American Indian people from the beginning of our being on this land, their land? So I did the same thing. I asked two graduates to come forward. I took off my academic garb. I brought water in a basin and I washed their feet as an act of repentance on behalf of white people. I can't, families were sobbing, graduates were sobbing. They said, we have never ever experienced somebody coming on our land and getting on their knees as an act of repentance for how they have treated and abused us over the years. So I think we need to think imaginatively about taking our religious rituals, making them public and giving them integrity. You know, I'll, I'll end with this. In our social statement, we say every congregation, every community of the faithful in this ELCA needs to be a disturbing presence in the world, a reconciling presence in the world, a serving presence in the world, and a deliberating presence in the world. 
when we say that, we're not just taking nice words. We embed those words in response to the, the injustices of war and economic exploitation and racial oppression. And, and I take that very seriously as forming my life and the community's life of which I'm a part locally, nationally, and internationally. And it's been a great privilege to lead. You know, I am the same person when I'm sitting with the Pope as I've done with two Popes. I was on President Obama's advisory council. I met with him a number of times in the White House. I am with them exactly as I am with you now. And as exactly I am with those in poverty, I don't become a different person. This is who I am. This is who I will be. And I've been really blessed to have the opportunity to serve in leadership. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Stream of Life podcast. Stay tuned for more stories to come. If you have stories you would like to share, email us at streamoflifeblog at gmail.com. Violence, insecurity, and injustice everywhere is a threat to peace, security, and justice everywhere. We are so interconnected than we imagine or wish to believe.